Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. The murder of parents by their children is called parasite. It accounts for approximately 2% of the homicides in the U.S. annually. Most of these tend to be committed by males, and typically it's a single victim and a single offender. Occasionally, both parents, to include a biological parent and step-parent, are murdered. In the case of multiple offenders, it's usually adolescent females who have enlisted their boyfriend or friends for assistance. Adult offenders of both sexes are usually mentally ill, whereas adolescents of both sexes are seeking to gain freedom. Female adolescents have usually been told they cannot date someone. Regardless of the reasons, parasite is shocking and leaves surviving relatives struggling to understand. The victims in today's episodes were wealthy, philanthropic, and the loving parents of two children. Okay, on to the show. Charlotte Cope Turner was born into an affluent family in Alabama in the early 1940s. Her family owned a Pepsi-Cola bottling plant in Luverne, Alabama for many years, starting with her grandfather. The plant bottled lime cola, milk hay, and new grape for many years before they began distributing Pepsi products. Charlotte's father joined the business before the outbreak of World War II, then came back to the family business after the war. Charlotte excelled in school, then attended Sweetbriar College and obtained a master's degree in communications from the University of Alabama. She was a member of the Delta Delta sorority, the Alabama debate squad, and was listed in who's who in American universities and colleges. After college, she moved to Washington, D.C., where she worked for Congressman Armistead I. Selden, Jr. While there, she met Winston Brent Springford, who was a lieutenant in the Air Force and working at the Department of Defense. He had graduated from the University of Idaho, where he belonged to the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, 
the Society of Automotive Engineers, and Beta Theta Pi. The two wed on June 24, 1967. Charlotte dressed in the style of the time in an A-line suit with a box coat of imported silk pearl brocade. Her circular veil in silk illusion fell from a pillbox hat of matching fabric. The couple eventually settled in Corning, New York, where Brent was the West Coast sales representative for the electronics divisions of Corning Glassworks. In 1972, when their daughter Stephanie was six months old, Brent and Charlotte decided to take a vacation to Mexico and left Stephanie with Charlotte's father and stepmother in Luverne, Alabama. Charlotte's younger sister Lois, then 21, still lived with her parents and helped with the baby. Tragically, around 1.30 in the morning on May 29, 1972, a fire broke out in the Turner's home. Lois managed to escape through a window, although she sustained severe lacerations to her legs. The fire department received the call around 2 a.m. and the fire was extinguished. Unfortunately, the Turners, as well as baby Stephanie, died from smoke inhalation. The fire did not reach the bedroom where the three of them slept. Lois survived her injuries, although she had one of her legs amputated later due to the severity of the injury. The Springfords returned to Alabama, where Brent stepped into the head role at the Pepsi-Cola bottling plant. They settled in Montgomery, where they were very active in society. Cheryl taught part-time at various locations, such as at her alma mater, the University of Alabama. She also taught a communications course at a prison and another one at a police department. She also wrote for the local newspaper on occasion. Charlotte was also very active in local politics and formed a mental health organization in Montgomery. The Springford's two children... Winston Brent Springford Jr. and Robin Springford were both excellent students and consistently on the honor roll while in high school. For now, when we refer to Brent, we are discussing the younger of the two. We will use the term senior to refer to his father. Brent has been described as a compassionate young man who was well-liked by his high school teachers. After graduating from Montgomery Academy, Brent attended Vanderbilt University. Soon he became interested in the more esoteric beliefs of the Eastern religions and asked his parents to fund numerous trips to Buddhist temples, monasteries, and retreats across the U.S. and in Mexico. While on the road, he met many people who attended Oberlin College in Ohio and recommended its Buddhist studies. Brent transferred and stayed for a week. After that, he traveled to more monasteries still funded by his parents. Along the way, he found out about Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, and enrolled. His parents were happy that he seemed to have settled down, although his major was in religious studies with an emphasis on Buddhism. His roommate introduced him to her parents, and he became close to the family. The father was sick, and Brent would often sleep on the floor to give his roommate and her mother a break. While staying with the family, Brent met Caroline Scout, a Native American woman who said she was the child of one of the last medicine women. Caroline was a practicing shaman who ran a nonprofit organization, and although there's no information left as to what this nonprofit organization was, it was probably related to being a shaman. According to Mark Pinsky, who is writing a book about Brent Springford, Brent finished his first semester at Naropa University and then went with Caroline to her farm in Wyoming, where he would earn work and, in exchange, 
Caroline would teach him about Native American heritage. Brent's parents visited him that summer and met Caroline. During a Native American event, Caroline offered counseling service while Brent appeared to have an odd breakdown in front of his parents. Shortly after, his mother contacted Caroline to be a caretaker for Brent. They sent her large sums of money to ensure he attended counseling and took his medications correctly. Although Brent was vehemently opposed to seeing a psychiatrist, when Caroline said she would leave, he agreed to counseling. His parents believed he was not working, but he did have a job working on an oil rig. They continued to send him money every month and eventually suggested they purchase Brent and Caroline a home in Colorado so he could be closer to better mental health care. In 2001, Senior and Charlotte purchased Brent a home and seven acres close to Windsor, Colorado. The home was occupied mostly by Caroline and her three adult kids as Brent continued his job in Wyoming, often sleeping in his truck during freezing weather conditions. Through this, he still did not tell his parents he was working, so they continued to fund his life with an allowance, paying for his medical bills and providing him with two cars. They even paid tuition for Caroline's children to attend a small college. His parents finally found out he was working, so finished sending him an allowance, but continued paying for everything else. During the intervening years, Brett had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and would frequently act erratically, such as banging his head on the floor or dash. In 2004, Caroline suggested Brent see a nutritional specialist in Fort Collins, Colorado. This specialist told Brent that he was not bipolar, but had heavy metals in his brain. The doctor recommended treatment on a large machine, which would allegedly pull the metals out. Brent agreed and stopped taking his medications. However, when Brent's father received a bill for $15,000, he wanted information. Senior told Brent he was cutting him off and added that he was not welcome at his sister's wedding in October 2004 because he was behaving so oddly. Additionally, in the fall of 2004, Charlotte found that Brent and Caroline were married and had never informed them. Panic-stricken and worried he and his family were going to be evicted from their home, Brent decided to visit his family in Alabama to discuss the issues with them. However, Brent did not tell his family he was coming and traveled under the fake name of Terry Chase. On Tuesday, November 23, 2004, at 3.15 a.m., he boarded a bus to Alabama and arrived in Montgomery on Wednesday, November 24, 2004, at 6.29 p.m. He wore a black hoodie with the hood up and walked to his parents' home in the Garden District of Montgomery. When he arrived, the house was empty. Brent remembered that his sister's bedroom window was not connected to the security system, so he broke this window to gain entry. While waiting for his family to return home, he walked around the house noting his bedroom had been remodeled, but his sister's was the exact same. He also used the time to saw the axe head off an axe and leave the handle outside his sister's bedroom window. Brent's parents had spent Wednesday night and Thanksgiving with his sister Robin and her husband in Birmingham. When they arrived home on Thanksgiving afternoon, he wanted to try to fix their relationship. But as he later told investigators, he quickly realized that was not going to happen. When the conversation escalated, 
Brent retrieved the axe handle and attacked his parents. He admitted his thoughts at the time were, this is insane, but either you do it now or you're not going to have the house. The house is going to be sold. He added, I thought, you have to. You have to protect your own family. Caroline and the kids were going to be evicted, and he's going to make a profit. I would sacrifice myself. He justified the murders by telling himself his parents had already killed their relationship. He felt like the black sheep of the family, and where he was vilified, Robin and her husband were deified. He became incensed when they asked him to leave, but did not offer to pay for his bus fare home. The autopsy reports later revealed that he had beaten his parents, then stabbed them. He attacked them with a kitchen knife when he realized his father was still breathing, and his mother showed defensive wounds on her arms. Their throats were slashed, but several stab wounds, including shallow cuts, were present. After the attacks, Brent took his parents' 1998 Black Jaguar and left the area. I'm going to pause the case right here so you can hear a word from our sponsors. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes cooking fun, easy, and affordable. My favorite. HelloFresh's recipes are so delicious. Over 90% of ingredients are sourced directly from growers to ensure the freshest recipes are delivered to your door. You can save time and stress effortlessly because HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. So you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. The best part is HelloFresh is flexible and fits your lifestyle. You can easily change your delivery days or food preferences and skip a week whenever you need. My family's favorite meal that I've made so far is the brown butter rigatoni with asparagus, walnuts, and lemony ricotta. Let me tell you, it is delicious. I will definitely be making that again. In fact, I basically am forced to make it again, so it will be on my next order. If you want to join me and be a part of the coolest cooking club there is, go to HelloFresh.com slash 80TCFC and use code 80TCFC to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply, so please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. Once again, go to HelloFresh.com slash 80TCFC and use the code 80TCFC to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
The next morning, Friday, November 26, 2004, workers arrived at the Springford home to finish laying tile. Michael Shelton, the crew leader, had done work for the Springfords over the years and had keys to their house as well as the alarm codes. When they entered through the garage, Michael noticed the alarm was not on and the couple's Jaguar was gone. As they entered the house, he noticed signs of struggle and called out to the Springfords. Continuing through the house, there were more signs something was not right. Finally, as they made their way upstairs, they saw what they realized was dry blood and went back downstairs to call Michael's boss and an employee at the bottling plant. A short while later, the Garden District was crawling with law enforcement and the Springford house was being processed as a crime scene. Law enforcement believed Brent positioned his parents' bodies so his sister would find them. Police immediately began searching for Brent and the car. They were both found on November 30th, but not together. The car was found near Tulsa, Oklahoma, and officers flew out to take possession of it. Brent was found in Weld County, Colorado, and after initial questioning, he checked himself into a mental health facility. When investigators in Colorado made contact with Caroline Scout, she informed them she did not know Brent Springford and only rented space out to a young man who wasn't there at the time. This was consistent with how the couple presented their relationship to others in the area. Many of their neighbors were unaware they were married. Meanwhile, Brent Sr. and Charlotte were memorialized in downtown Montgomery. At the request of family and friends, the media was absent. More than 200 people attended the service, including people they had known for over 30 years. Brent Jr. did not attend and his name was not included in the obituary. While at Centennial Peaks Hospital, Brent called television station WSFA Channel 12 in Montgomery. The news director, Denise Vickers, said they were fairly certain the caller was Brent Springford Jr., as they traced the number back to the hospital, and he revealed information most people would not know, such as the detective's name. Brent said he did not learn about his parents' deaths until Monday, even though the police did contact him on Saturday. He said this was just a wellness check and they did not mention his parents' deaths. He said he was devastated by their deaths and, quote, I was crying, very badly shaken and terribly sad to hear that news. I loved my mother and father and always have. I can't imagine anything but loving them. He called the station again, claiming his family was trying to take his home away from him and that he did not commit the crime. The statement the station recorded was directed at his sister, Robin. He said, It is unfair for Robin to even think that I had a motive because mom and dad sent me a check every week and paid my medical gave me a credit card and had contractors do things for the house. Brent Springford Jr. was arrested on Wednesday, December 8, 2004 at around 11.30 p.m. He was charged with two counts of capital murder and he fought extradition to Alabama, but just before a scheduled extradition hearing in February 2005, he waived extradition. Officers from Alabama traveled to Colorado to escort Brent back via private plane he was wearing a bulletproof vest and also had a jacket over his head to protect him from potential jurors seeing photographs of him handcuffed. Seeing photographs of Brent in handcuffs could be construed as prejudicial 
and he might not receive a fair trial because of it. Brent was represented by Bill Blanchard, who also represented the juvenile Lee Boyd Malvo, one of the perpetrators of the Beltway Sniper murders. Lee Malvo had participated in murdering a liquor store owner in Alabama in 2002 and faced charges in the Alabama courts, in addition to the numerous murder charges in the D.C. area. Because of this representation, Brent's preliminary hearing had to be rescheduled, since Bill Blanchard was required in court in Birmingham on Lee Malvo's case. When Brent first faced a judge for the reading of his charges, Brent was mute, staring straight ahead. He was nudged by a deputy when the judge asked Brent a question. Brent was advised that if he talked about the case to anyone, they could be called as a witness. In May, Brent waived his right to a preliminary hearing, instead waiting for the grand jury. This delayed the case due to the backlog of forensic testing in the state crime lab. The backlog resulted in a delay of just over two years in the grand jury hearing. In December 2006, the grand jury indicted Brent Springford Jr., charging him with five counts of capital murder. These included two counts of burglary in the commission of a murder, two counts of robbery in the commission of a murder, and one count of killing two or more persons. In January 2007, in a court appearance, Brent pleaded not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity for each charge. At the time of his initial arrest in 2004, he had been clean-shaven with extremely short hair. During the court appearance in January 2007, he barely resembled the same person, with his hair down to his waist and a long beard. In February 2007, his attorney argued for a change of venue for the trial, stating that it would be hard to find anyone in the central portion of the state that had not seen the media coverage. There was not a trial date set at this point, but the judge did ask for the attorney's calendars for October through February 2008. In August 2007, a trial date was set, and the venue was changed to Birmingham. The trial was set for January 7, 2008. The judge agreed that Brent could not get a fair trial due to the media coverage. In September, due to delays created by test of Brent's mental health, the trial was moved to January 26th. Brent was examined by state mental health professionals who declared he did not have any major mental illnesses. The defense wanted to use their own professionals and scheduled a competency hearing, but nothing was scheduled until September 2007. Nearly four years after his parents were murdered, Brent Springford Jr. pleaded guilty to capital murder. Brent said he did not remember seeing his parents alive that night, but, quote, I believe we were all three there that night. He also said, I do not doubt that it was my body that caused the deaths. I know my conscious mind was not present. He was asked if he had permission to be in the house and replied no, but then added, No, but in my way of feeling and thinking, it's hard to need permission to be in the house I grew up in. In December, in front of a jury, Brent was found guilty on all five counts and sentenced to life in prison. He said he prayed he would go to a mental health facility. His sister Robin testified that their parents were scared of Brent, but did not elaborate as to why. Bill Blanchard stated after the trial that Brent had been examined by a defense-appointed psychiatrist who had diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. On December 6, 2008, Robin Springford Couch, 
collapse in a statement to WSFA 12 News. It said, quote, In November 2004, I lost the two most special people in my life. It was devastating enough to lose my parents, but to lose them at the hands of my own brother was unimaginable. Many years passed without a resolution to this tragedy, and though we have been patient with the judicial system and stoic on the outside, our family has been more than ready to see justice served. Today, we finally received some closure in that we feel the person responsible for it all is being held accountable for what he did. Although I feel he deserves the same fate he afforded my parents, our family does take comfort in knowing he will no longer be able to harm anyone else. Brent Springford Jr. was sent to Donaldson because it had a special unit for those with mental health problems. In October 2013, Brent Springford died from an overdose of Tylenol. If there was a note, it has not been reported in the media. The Springford fortune was to be split equally among Brent and Robin, but after the murders, the wills were sent to probate court. The bottling company is now in the hands of Robin and her husband, and has been nominated for several bottling company awards, winning in 2015. Caroline Scout, Brent's wife, moved back to Wyoming where she became embroiled in another legal case. In 2015, Richard Campbell died from a gunshot wound to the head, which appeared to be a suicide. He was renting a space on her property and she discovered his body. Richard was a well-liked man who hated guns so much he didn't own any. The gun used in the shooting belonged to Caroline Scout. She admitted to the grand jury that she loaned him the weapon. It was discovered that Caroline Scout had life insurance on Richard Campbell in the amount of $100,000. The inquest ruled that Richard Campbell's death was a homicide. Caroline Scout was arrested in conjunction with this case for intimidating a witness and in 2018 for falsely obtaining property. She was also charged with counseling without a license. Caroline passed away on February 18, 2019 from natural causes. Mark Pinsky, the true crime author mentioned earlier, contacted the coroner with concerns that Caroline had faked her own death. The coroner, who had dealt with Caroline after Richard Campbell's murder, assured Mark that Caroline had died of natural causes. Brent's suicide and Caroline's death both leave unanswered questions as there are suspicions she manipulated Brent into murdering his parents, particularly after her involvement with Richard Campbell in Wyoming. This was a tragedy for everyone it touched, the immediate family, but also the citizens of Montgomery who love the Springfords. One wonders at the timing of Brent's actions, particularly after stating he felt vilified and his sister deified. Robin had just been married the month before, in a wedding he was ordered not to attend. What should have been the happiest time of her life, her first Thanksgiving as a married woman, was marred by her parents' murders, and every holiday after, a grim reminder. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, subscribe, and positively review the show on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, 
facebook.com slash TCFC podcast. We're also on Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.